Go ahead and grab a seat. Good morning, City Light Church. Good to see you. My name is Gavin. I'm one of the pastors here. Luke chapter 18 and verses 18 through 30. Get there in your Bibles or on your phones or it'll be on the screens if you're lazy, forgetful or whatever. We got Bibles everywhere. We're going to hear from God in his word one way or another. And uh, chapter 18, verses 18 through 30, if you didn't hear the sermon last week, listen to it online. Chris did a great job, didn't even swear, so proud of him. And uh, he preached the story, this is our second week in Luke 18. We've been kind of hitting one sermon in every chapter of the book. We're going to hit two in Luke 18. And uh, the reason is this, uh, well, let me back up. So Chris last week preached the parable of, I better shut this off before Chris starts calling me. Chris preached the parable of the, uh, of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And it's a shocking story of comparison wherein Jesus is teaching us something by comparing to people. And so you've got this religious, devout guy, and you've got a notorious sinner that both go into the temple to pray. And at the end of the story, the twist is the notorious sinner goes home justified, and the religious, devout dude goes home condemned. And it's a shocking scene. And actually, this theme, this lesson by comparison, is carried out through the whole of chapter 18 of verse Luke, wherein Jesus is comparing. Luke is organizing these stories so that we can get the flow of of, of the value system of the kingdom of God. So in the very next scene, we see these little children come before Jesus, and Jesus receives them. And they are representative of a childlike, dependent, humble faith in Jesus. And the very next scene is the rich young ruler. You've got a a proud man who actually walks away from Jesus sad, and he is representative of self-righteousness and self-dependence and self-confidence in in oneself and one's goodness. And then the chapter ends where you've got Bartimaeus, the blind, broke beggar, and he finds favor with God. And and you read all these stories back to back, and, and the flavor that you get in chapter 18, looking at all the stories, is simply this. This Jesus thing isn't for the proud. The flavor we get is that um, if, if we're pretty sure we've got it together, if we're the kind of people who we're pretty sure that we're pretty good and we're maybe not perfect, but we're at least better than the other guy, and, and we're pretty sure that, that God is proud of our accomplishments and, and he's going to welcome us on the, merit of, on the merit of our own good works, then this Jesus thing, he, he really isn't for us. I mean, he... He came not for the healthy, but for the sick. And this kingdom of God thing, this isn't really our jam. That's not our value system. This gospel thing isn't really good news to us at all because we don't really need good news. But on the other hand, if we're the kind of people that are pretty sure that we're not good, if we're pretty sure that we don't measure up to God's standard, if we're pretty good that there's something in here that is broken and that we need help from God, we need grace from God, then this Jesus thing, this gospel thing, this good news kingdom of God thing is, is for people like us. And we should run to God willingly and eagerly and desperately and joyfully. That's the kind of the flavor of all of chapter 18. And this morning, I'm, I want to take the opportunity to zoom in just on one more encounter in Luke chapter 18. The theme is very much the same. It's going to feel very redundant, but I think Luke puts it in here because it's so much, because it's so easy for us to miss, especially us church folk in the room on a Sunday morning, hearing the message every single week. And we're going to look at the story of the rich young ruler. And uh, I want to be real candid. This is a tough story. 
I don't like this story. This is one that I wouldn't write in the book if God gave me the pen. But the reason why I don't like it is it confronts me. I, I look at the rich young ruler and I see a mirror into my own soul. And I think for a lot of our church, we're going to see a mirror into our own souls as we're a church of a lot of people that are pretty young, a lot of people that are pretty influential, and a lot of people that have done well. And I think we're at risk of some of the very things that the rich young ruler was at risk of and falling victim to. And I think the three questions that we're going to be confronted with this morning is, number one, where is your trust? Before God, as you think about eternal life, all that stuff, where is your trust? Number two, I think we're confronted with the question of where is your treasure? The place of first importance in your heart, what is your treasure? Number three, do you really believe that Jesus is better? Those are the questions that we're going to be confronted with this morning. Um, Now, the setup is this. So we've been reading Luke um, since Christmas. We were in it last year. And since chapter 9, Jesus has been journeying to Jerusalem. As he's traveling, he's um, taking the opportunity to do a lot of teaching. He's gathered a crowd around him. Some of them are followers. Some of them are are critics and haters. Some of them are just curious onlookers who are are trying to get a feel for what is all the hype about this Jesus man. And, And Jesus takes the opportunity to interact with a lot of them. And in each one, we learn something about Jesus and about God and about the kingdom of God and about the good news of the gospel. And in this one, a young man named the rich young ruler, or we're going to call him the rich young ruler, comes up and asks Jesus the question, Jesus, how can I inherit eternal life? One of the most basic questions we can ask in thinking about eternity and religious systems and and, uh, kind of getting to the the nut of the issue. Jesus, how do I uh, inherit eternal life? Uh, real quick note, this, this is an important story. It actually shows up in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us that he's young, but Matthew and Mark do, and so we're going to go with it. We know who this guy is. He is the rich, young ruler, and uh, we're not to our verses quite yet. Don't get ahead of me. Don't give away my punchlines today. It's going to be very important. Uh, we're going to call him Richie for the rest of our time, and uh, the, the question that, that he asked Jesus is, how do I inherit eternal life? And, and what Jesus does is what he often does. Um, he doesn't answer the question in a direct way. He's actually going to answer it in a way that exposes kind of the question behind the question and what's going on in Richie's heart. And one of the things that he does first, very cleverly, I, I hope that I can unpack this in a way that I read it and I think that it happened in the moment. Jesus is a brilliant teacher. He has a way of getting to the heart of things, and I think he's going to get to our heart today. And the first thing I think he wants us to wrestle with is, where is your trust? Where is your trust? As we think about the first question, where is your trust, start with, with this. I've, uh, an interesting thing happened to me, to me this year. I've started buying extended warranties and optional insurance plans. This has never happened before. Okay, a year ago, if I'm at the counter and I'm buying something, headphones, and they try to upsell me for $19, you can get a performance uh, guarantee protection plan. My blood pressure goes up. I shut the conversation. No, I just want the headphones. Don't make me fill out paperwork. I don't want to give you $20. I don't want a guarantee. I'm going to lose that before I leave this place. Just sell me the headphones. I don't want the performance plan. I don't want the credit card. I just want the headphones. But then something happened this year. So my wife and I just bought 
a new house, which means it's a, a very expensive season for us because you get into the new house and it's bigger than the old little starter home that you were in and suddenly you feel like you need a new dining room table and a new couch because you have like two living rooms and used to have one and we had built-ins in our old house so we owned one dresser for a family of five and suddenly you need like four more dressers. I'm, I still don't own a dresser. I'm living out of boxes. I'm the last one to get it. Um, you need a new TV. Uh, you do. My wife didn't think so, but she didn't think through like watching the Super Bowl on our old-fashioned tube TV, um, but the Lord made it real clear. This is from the Lord. We need a new TV, and so we're working that out. Thus saith the Lord. Anyway, we got the TV, and uh, so we're buying all these things, and as we're spending about half of our paycheck at NFM every single month, some of you know what that feels like, um, it dawns on me, we, we kind of live in a zoo. Like my wife and I have three kids who are six years old and younger. We have a 70-pound dog, and about everything we own gets ruined, dinged up, dented, and absolutely destroyed. And so now when they tell me, hey, you just bought this new couch, and for like $30, we're going to guarantee for five years it has no spills, no stains, no rips, no tears, no burns, I want to hug them. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'll give you 80. You don't even know what you're saying right now, like this kind of guarantee, we're going to, you're going to lose so much money on us. In fact, we were there last week and my wife asked him like, how often can we use this? You know, she's thinking like once a week too much. Cause that's kind of when we have the resolve out and that's kind of how it goes down. And so all of a sudden I'm that guy, I've got guarantees and warranties on, on everything. And it, it makes me feel so secure. Everything I have, I feel so secure. I've got homeowner's insurance, car insurance, health insurance, dental insurance, life insurance, cell phone insurance, furniture insurance, couch insurance, TV insurance. I really do. And I feel so secure about all of it. Your kid wants to play a game on my iPhone? Sure, if he drops it, it's insured. My kids want to use butter knives with their Play-Doh on the kitchen uh, uh, table? Why not? It's insured. They scratch it. I call a guy. He shows up. What do I care? I got five years of this, right? You want to come over for a bonfire in the middle of my living room? Let's do it. I got insurance. We'll put some foil down. I'm sure it'll all go just fine, right? It gives me such a feeling of security to have responsibility and make responsible decisions and get this insurance. And, and really, I think what's going on with the rich young ruler is this is kind of the way he's approaching this eternal life thing. See, the rich young ruler had a lot of responsibility. He was a ruler, and he was rich, and he got there young, and, and he carries a lot of responsibility, and he's done well, and he likes feeling secure. And uh, um, he was se- secure, right? He's got the trifecta of perfection going on in his life. He's rich. Hallelujah. That's fantastic. He's accumulated for himself financial resources that has secured his needs and his wants. Additionally, he's rich and he's young. If there's a good time to be rich... It's when you're young, right? You can enjoy those resources and that security for a long time. He didn't um, hope to get there by the time he was 60, so then he could kind of enjoy, uh, enjoy himself and coast. He got to the finish line early. He's got the majority of his life to enjoy that. He's feeling very secure. Furthermore, he's a, he's a ruler. He's got influence. He's got people. He wants things done. People got his back. They can do it for him. This guy lives a very secure lifestyle. He's got his bases covered. And then in verse 18, and now we can get it up, he approaches Jesus and he asked him what I think is an honest and earnest question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I think what's going on here is this guy figures, hey man, I've kind of got this life buttoned up. Things are pretty good here. How do I ensure eternity, right? 
I know my bases are covered for the here and for the now, but his mind starts to wander, and he knows there's a rabbi who's a sought-after teacher, and, and uh, he wants to make sure. He's pretty sure he's good, but he wants to make sure he's good. And so, Rabbi, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I make sure eternity is as secure as the life that I'm living right now? Now, all the evangelists in the room, I know what you're thinking, right? Because I'm thinking it too. Jack, you're thinking it. Everyone who loves to share your faith, you hear this question, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you're thinking, Jesus, this is low-hanging fruit, brother. Right? Get your Bible tracked. Like, what else do you want? Draw the bridge. Take him down the Romans road. Tell him it's all about grace and not about works. And you're headed to the cross and you're going to die for his sins. And that he needs to trust in you as your savior, his Savior and Lord. Jesus, have him pray after you some repeated prayers and walk down an aisle. Hallelujah, baptism coming up, Right? Jesus, walk him across the line. This is a softball evangelism. How do I inherit eternal life, right? Easy. What's Jesus say? Verse 19. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? What? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Jesus, you're blowing it! This is the easiest evangelistic opportunity. And you take him to the law? You take him to the Ten Commandments? Are we reading the same Bibles here? He wanted to know how to have eternal life. Share the God. Didn't you take a class on evangelism, Jesus? That's what I'm thinking when I read this. Oh, no, 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 no. Jesus knows what he's doing. And he's sharing the gospel with this young man. The difference between me sharing the gospel and Jesus sharing the gospel is Jesus knows what's going on in this young man's heart. He knows that the the premise in which this man approaches Jesus is all wrong. We've got off to the wrong start, and he needs to lay a whole new foundation to this. Because this man isn't even ready to hear about grace because he's not interested in grace. He's not interested in mercy. He's interested in proving that he has what it takes to get eternal life. So here's what he says. Here's the setup. He starts by, by asking the man, uh, Richie, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. Theologically, some of you should have some tension right now, right? Why, why, do, you, why do you say that I'm good? Well, Jesus is good. Well, he is good, right? Jesus is not denying his divinity in this moment, okay? This is not even on young Richie's radar right now. What Jesus is doing is very intentionally laying a theological foundation for the conversation that they are about to have. And the point that Jesus is making is there is one person good, and that is God alone. Everyone else is not good. It's not a popular saying in our day, but I'll prove it to you. How many of you have ever met a two-year-old whose first word was yours? whose first words were, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, yours, would you like this? No. He's saying, no one is good except God alone. Okay, young man? So he's, he's throwing the young man a softball back. He's saying, we're gonna, I'm going to give you a hint about where I'm taking you, young man, and just remind you, no one is good except for God alone. Okay? Now, hold up, hold up, hold up. Let me repeat it. No one is good except for God alone. Now, Richie, let's talk about you for a second. He says, okay, young man, you know the Ten Commandments. Jesus goes on to quote five of them, I think, kind of shorthand for the whole ten, the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments. 
you know what God requires. He was a young Jewish man. He says, now go off and do it. Obey God, okay? There's a lot going on in this conversation right now because Jesus knows what this young man is thinking. What does the young man answer? Piece of cake. Jesus, I have been keeping the laws of God since my youth, i.e., I'm a good person, i.e., let me prove to you that I deserve eternal life. What's becoming very clear in this dialogue is that this young man didn't come wanting to learn anything but wanting to prove everything to Jesus. He wanted to make sure that he measured up. He was pretty sure, right? It's like, I'm pretty sure I'm tall enough to ride the roller coaster, but I'm going to go stand next to the line just to show, yep, see? Show my little sister I'm three inches taller. Like, can I ride the ride? Oh, I can. Can you? No, you're short, Dave. You can't ride the ride. It's all right. God loves you. Just think of Zacchaeus. Anyway, um, so Jesus makes his, his move and says, uh, go and keep the law. The young man says, yeah, I can do it. See, I'm two inches above the line. Then Jesus comes in, and uh, here's where he makes his move. Verse 20. It says, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, okay. One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Here's what Jesus is saying here. Okay, young man, been keeping the law since you were a little guy, huh? Pretty proud of yourself, rich young ruler. Kept all the Ten Commandments, huh? Okay, well, let's test that. Let's go to commandment number one. What's commandment number one? You shall have no other gods before me. Okay, let's, let's take a look at your money, young man. Let's pull on that money and let's, let's trace the roots and see where they lead. Oh, oh, those roots are wrapped around the control center of your heart, aren't they? Oh, wait a second. God is not on the throne of your heart, is he? Money's in there. Oh, you're not good before God, Rich. You're an idolater. Money is your God. You need grace, young man. Furthermore, how does Jesus summarize all of the law? When he's asked, teacher, what's the whole law? He says, love the Lord your God with, with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So how do you keep the law? You love God and you love others. And so Jesus says, okay, young man, you law keeper, you good person. Uh, you say you keep the law, prove it. Love me enough to leave your wealth behind and love the poor enough to give them your wealth. Love God and love others. In so doing, you will keep the law. Can the man do it? He can't do it. You see what Jesus is doing in this moment? He is sharing the gospel, but he's exposing the need for grace in this young man's heart. He's showing this young man, listen, young man, you can either trust in your religious performance, your morality, your goodness, or you can cry out to God for mercy and admit that you can't keep the law. But what happens? The young man goes away sad. He thought he could come to Jesus and, and prove that he was essentially a good person and just add on a little bit of warranty, right? Like an extended protection plan against his morality. He's pretty sure he's pretty good enough, and he just wanted to know from the good teacher that he was going to get there. He thought he could add on an extended warranty plan on his morality, and Jesus says, no, 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 no. It doesn't work like that. You get one trust. You come to God on the basis of your merits or his mercy, and that's it. You don't add to your goodness the insurance plan of Jesus Christ. You put all your eggs in that basket and you choose one trust. You choose your goodness or you choose Jesus's. How's he going to respond? Not good. He ends up trusting his moral record, 
He's worked too hard for too long to be too good to quit trusting in his goodness. And I think the question for you and I in this text is, where is your trust? When it comes to eternal life, where's your trust? Richie asked this question to make sure that he was good enough. And I think, how many of us come to church, come to city group, we come to God, because we're pretty sure we're good enough, but we just want to make sure we're better than the other people. We're pretty sure we're good enough, but we want to add to our morality church. We want to add to our morality a little bit of grace just in case our goodness doesn't get in there. And what the story of the rich young ruler teaches us is that we can't trust in our goodness for the most part and add a little bit of grace just in case we don't get there. We have to choose. We'll either trust in ourselves or we will trust in Jesus. What are you trusting in? Our only trust can be Jesus Christ. Our only trust can be his goodness. Our only trust can be his grace. Where's your trust? We pick one. So I think the first, the first question that we have to wrestle with in this text is, where is our trust, okay? But I think there's something else going on in the story, and uh, I don't want to overlook the obvious to over-spiritualize this thing, okay? Um, I think there's something else going on here where Richie is also materially rich. He's wealthy, and that seems to be like a thing. Like, read the verses, it comes up. Jesus points it out. They're talking about money here, okay? So the first thing is really a trust issue. This guy's trusting in his goodness, not in Jesus. The second thing is a treasure issue. Because Richie is, is rich, it creates a problem in him wherein Jesus isn't his treasure, his wealth is. And so I think if we're going to sit under the text today and let it interact with our hearts, we've got to ask the question, not only where's your trust, but where's your treasure? Where is your treasure? Where's your trust? Where's your treasure? You know, the Bible has a lot to say about money. And no matter where you're at, economically, philosophically, politically, it probably confronts all of our thinking about money in some way. See, the Bible talks about money um, really in a more positive light. It talks about accumulating wealth in a more positive light than most socialist societies. It also is more candid and realistic about the dangers of money and accumulating wealth in most capitalist societies. And what the Bible overarchingly would tell us is that money and wealth is a blessing from God. It is a good thing. The Bible would teach us work a job, make money, save your money, invest your money, be generous with your money, worship God with your money, and leave some money for your kids. That's a godly way to handle money. But it would also be really quick to warn us about the dangerous grip that money can have on the human heart. And that's what happens with the rich young ruler. This young man has a good thing that he turns into an ultimate thing. He takes a blessing from God, which is his wealth, and he lets it become a burden to knowing and treasuring God. And the reality is none of us in this room are immune to this. Any blessing from God becomes a burden to our relationship with God when we take the blessing and let it occupy the place of first importance in our hearts. City Light, the real estate that we need to guard more than our house and our bedroom and our Anything is the place of first importance in our heart. Anytime something slips in there that isn't God, it becomes an idol. A blessing becomes a burden. And I need to be real honest and candid about this text. It scares the crap out of me. It is an intimidating verse because it peers into my heart and I go, I'm the rich young ruler. I am the richest person I know. 
I don't mean I have more material wealth than all of you, but honestly, can I just say it? I have basically anything I want. The level of luxury that that I get to experience, I can eat about anything I want to eat whenever I want to eat it. The rest of the world doesn't live like that. I got three toilets in my house that flush water that most of the world doesn't have access to to drink. I don't even think about it. I take a shower till the hot water heater runs out, right? I just sit, I couldn't care less. I own two cars outright. The level of luxury that I... I live in climate-controlled environments 24-7. The whole world that I live in my entire life will be between 68 and 72 unless I choose to sit in a tree stand, and that's my own volitional poor decision-making, right? (laughs) I'm the richest person I know. Furthermore, I am the most blessed person I know. Have you seen my family? Have you seen my wife? Not everyone gets something like that. Have you seen my kids? They're adorable. I am the most blessed person I know. I'm surrounded by some of the most incredible, life-giving, encouraging friends and cheerleaders and encouraging, supportive people. Not everyone gets that. I look at my life and I think, I am literally the most blessed person I know. I am the richest person I know. And the dangerous of being so dang blessed is that those blessings can become a burden when I let them become my treasure. Jesus says, listen, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. If that doesn't startle you, if that doesn't slow you down a little bit and cause you to wonder, then you're just, you're deceived. People were rich. We should look at that and say, oh no! Do I really think that I could give up all of this And all of my comfort, if I was driven to the point of decision like young man Richie and I had to, I actually had to choose, could I do it? The bedtime tuck-ins with my kids, this community, what we've seen happen and my, my wife and the friendship that we have and all the comforts, I've worked hard for this stuff. In a moment, could I say, Jesus, you're better. I'll sell it all, walk away and I'll, could I do it? I don't know. That's the scary thing. Could I do it? I don't know. It seems impossible. Let me ask you, what's the one thing you couldn't give up to follow Jesus? What's the one thing you would say, Jesus, hands off, you can have everything but not that? If there's but one thing, you say, listen, it's easier for a camel, the largest land animal in that part of that world, in that part of history, to go through the eye of a needle, the smallest man-made thing in that part of the world, in that part in human history, saying it's impossible. And if you're feeling right now like, I don't know, that feels really impossible, let me say that's, that's where the Bible folks were. Look at what they say in verse 26. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? This is them throwing up their arms saying, this sounds impossible. Here's what Jesus replies in verse 27. It's the best news I could find in this passage. What is impossible with man is possible with God. The good news is if you're not sure If you're rich and blessed like me, if you think, man, is Jesus really my treasure? How could I ever pick him? How could he ever have the place of first importance and priority in my heart? How could it ever happen? God has to make it happen. Only God can take a heart that's that's intoxicated with the pleasure of money and make Jesus a richer treasure to him. And the good news is, City Light, millions of Christians who have gone before us have treasured the Lord Jesus more than anything else. 
And in this room, there are people who treasure Jesus more than anything else. And in our hearts, I really believe that Jesus can ascend himself to the place of first importance in our hearts so that Jesus would truly be our treasure. And you say, well, Gavin, that's great, but then why do we have young man Richie in in the book? Like, why do we have a negative example? Why does the man go away um, sad? Where's the positive example? Who can actually live this out? Well, actually, we do have a good example in the Bible. It's right in our text. Look what Peter says in verse 28. What does Peter say? And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more. Matthew says a hundredfold in this time and in the age to come eternal life. The positive examples are the disciples. Remember Chris's sermon, drop it like it's hot? That was Peter dropping his net, leaving it behind to follow Jesus. The disciples, they left their comfort, their security, their pleasure, their way of life, everything they know to make Jesus their treasure. And Jesus says, because of this, you will receive more back in this life and in the life to come than what you gave up. What a promise and what a paradox, isn't it? It's like the more you hang on to the things that you treasure more than Jesus, the more you realize you can't hang on to them. And the more you let go of them and make Jesus your prize and your treasure, the more you realize you get a hundred times back more than you could ever give away. Jim Elliott, the missionary who gave it all away for the glory of God, said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. What a paradox. Jesus says, I'm better because you give everything away and you choose me and you get everything back a hundred times. You want a great marriage? Don't treasure your marriage above Jesus or you're going to ruin it. It's not made to be your God. Your spouse won't fulfill you. You want a great measure? Treasure Christ. Put that weight on him. He can treasure, he can carry it. And you know what? You're going to have a hundred times better marriage. Man, don't idolize and covet your kids. Don't let your lives revolve around little idols of children in your house and their academic success and their athletic success and that they live a perfect... They can't bear the weight of your expectation. Revolve around Christ. Treasure Christ. And your parenting will be a hundred times better than than the idolization of your little kids. Anything you give to Jesus, you get back a hundred times fold. And what we're learning is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Then all those treasures, they're great. They're gifts from God congratulations, and Jesus is better than all of it. And if you treasure him, you're going to crush him. And so you treasure Christ. He's better. So the third question I want to put before us is, do you really believe that Jesus is better? Do you really believe that Jesus is better? Just picture the scene in Luke 18. Um, Here you've got the young man, and he's just walked away, and his head's down, and he's sad because he had a bunch of money, and he couldn't give it away, and he thought that was better. And then you've got the disciples, and where are they? They're with Jesus. Okay, now fast forward 2,000 years. Remember, these are real men that were on this earth. This is not a fiction story. Richie was a real man, and people are eternal, and Richie and all the disciples are somewhere right in this moment as I preach. Where are they? Richie is still sad. Unless later in life he turned around and trusted Jesus Christ, and we don't know the end of the story. We're assuming that he didn't because he didn't in the text, and if that's the case, Richie right now is still sad, and he's still apart from Jesus The only difference is all of his treasures have failed him. He's no longer young. He's no longer rich. He's no longer a ruler. He has no influence. All of what he thought he treasured has disappointed him, and he still doesn't have Jesus. 
Instead, he has separation, he has judgment, he has wrath, and he has regret. And where are the disciples who gave up everything to follow Jesus? In the story, they're with Jesus, and they're enjoying Jesus, and they're worshiping Jesus, and they're treasuring Jesus. And right now, they are with Jesus, and they are worshiping Jesus, and they are treasuring Jesus. And a hundredfold, anything they gave away, they are experiencing right now in the full presence of Jesus Christ in glory. And that's God's promise to us. How can we treasure Christ more than anything else? Because he's better than anything else. Than your money, Jesus is better. Do you believe that? Then your security, Jesus is better. Then your closest relationships, Jesus is better. Then all of your ambitions and your career and your plan, your tenure plan, and all, Jesus is better than all of it. Jesus is our sure trust. Jesus is our sure treasure. Than anything, Jesus is better. I want to shut this sermon down with a poem. Chris makes fun of me when I write poems. So, Chris, we're going to call it a rap, okay? I'm about to spit a flow. I didn't write a poem. It's a rap. Here it goes. I grew up the good kid. I stayed out of trouble. I followed the rules and didn't live like the rebels. I prayed the prayer. I slayed my sin, my youthful passions I wouldn't let win. I led all the studies. I taught the good book, leveraged all I had, my own dreams. I forsook God's law, his commandments, his ways, his truth. Like the young ruler Richie, I've kept these since my youth. The danger, it seems, is that I feel entitled. Have I really served God or have I created an idol of my goodness, my honor, my merit, my pride? Is it all a facade for my shame and guilt to hide? Then the gospel confronts me. It has some good news, but my basis for heaven, I will have to choose. My record, my ego, my goodness, my pride, I I have to leave it behind and lay it all aside. It's hard because I want some reward for my efforts. I've worked really hard. I've got a decent record. My pride, it wants some stroking, my ego, a high five, a medal, a trophy, an honor, a prize. Yet, I can choose but one trust on that day. I can show him my efforts, or for grace I can pray. And I look at my goodness against his, it don't measure my trust and my treasure. Jesus, you alone are better. Now, the riches of life, they surround me each day. My house, car, and career, my 401k. I've made some real progress, paid down on my mortgage Worked hard, gone without so that I could afford it. The future looks good now. We're finally secure. We can plan, play, and invest and not have to fear. Vacations are nice, some good schools for my kids. We can host some fun dinners in our fancy new digs. It feels so secure. Certainly, now we are safe. Or is it all a veneer? The security of fake? Then Jesus confronts me. First place in my heart is a table for one. Nothing else can take part. Could I leave it or gift it or just walk away? To the poor and the needy, if they need it today, could I hand them the keys and write them a check? Is Jesus all that I need, the true treasure in my chest? Is my safety, security, comfort, and joy found in numbers and riches and trinkets and toys? And I look at my riches and all the pleasures, my trust and my treasure, my Jesus, you alone are better. This life is deceiving. I'm I'm good and I'm rich. You would think that God would surely be impressed, but In this kingdom of God, values turn upside down. The broke humble are in and the proud good are out. And the rich are in danger of losing it all as they misplace their treasures and some towers that will fall. Jesus, you alone are our treasure. Jesus, you alone are the only one better. More joy in this life and in the life to come. More pleasure, more freedom, more safety, more fun. Better are you than a thousand new toys, than our moral perfection and religious white noise 
Jesus, be our treasure, this church family and me, this city-like community. Give us eyes to see. You alone are the way and the truth and the light. Would you always be our treasure, our safety, our only delight? Show us the world for what it really is. Help us see the fool's gold and cash it all in for a greater joy and a greater reward that no rust can ruin nor moths destroy. Oh, Jesus, be front and center in this place, in our hearts, in our lives. Make us rich with your grace. For we are now, in this moment, more convinced than ever that for our trust, city light, and our treasure, oh, Jesus, you are better. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, it's hard to read a passage like this because it exposes our own hearts. God, I'm guilty of my own confidence that I'm not perfect, but I'm better than most. And yet you confront me and say, no one is good but God alone. Oh, God, would you be our trust Would there be no misplaced security, no false eternal security plan other than the merit of Jesus and the blood of Jesus on the cross for sinners like us? And oh God, we're an affluent culture and even the poorest among us are richer than most of the rest of the world and the level of comfort that we get to experience is is unprecedented in the rest of the world and in human history. Oh, God, would it never become our treasure? Would you keep our hearts pure, that place of of first important at the top of our heart? Oh, Lord, would that be reserved for you and for you alone? And now, God, would you convince us? We, We believe that promise that you said, with man it's impossible. Apart from you, we'll get captivated by all this fool's gold. We'll be duped by all the lies of the enemy. But with you alone, you can remind us daily, oh, Jesus, you're better. I love everything I have, but I could walk away from all of it tomorrow if you called me because I believe to the core of my being that you are better. Oh, Jesus, would this place treasure Jesus Christ above all else, above all the religious rigor, above all the worship services and city groups and donuts and fun high fives and all of that, it's great, but would you be the center of this place? Jesus, without you, we're dead. And so God, captivate our hearts and captivate our church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.